Week six of our series that we're calling Postcards from Patmos. This morning we're going to look at our fifth church uh, in the list of seven churches. So we are six out of eight weeks down in this series. It is flying by. And, and I think it's best for us to kind of go back to the beginning. If you're new here, you've missed some of this series, I think it's important for us to lay the foundation for the entirety of the book of Revelation. So as we open up the pages of this letter, what you're seeing is a real letter to real people facing real circumstances. This is important for us as we read because what often happens is an inappropriate or a a wrong look at the book of Revelation for years has led a trail of confused and frightened believers to really be uncertain as they approach the pages of this letter. And so I want to remind us that this is a real letter because the draw for us as we dive into this letter may be to approach the text seeking to ask a primary question. And this is true of a lot of us in many different circumstances, many different books of the Bible. We often approach it from the standpoint of, what does this mean to me? It's the wrong question as we start. The primary question that we ask as we dive into the Word of God is first and foremost, what does it mean? What does it mean? Once we figure out the context, once we figure out the recipients of the letter, what Jesus is actually trying to say to these churches, then and only then does the follow-up question come, now what does this mean to me? What does it mean to the original believers, and now how can I apply it to my life as well. So I want to keep that at the forefront as we look at the text this morning. So today, we're going to head about 40 miles south of Thyatira, that we looked at last week. Uh, We're going to look at the city and the church of Sardis. So if you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to work through the first six verses this morning of Revelation chapter 3. So we'll start looking at verse 1. He says this, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Up to this point, every letter that you've seen or every section to a specific church has followed the same pattern. Hopefully you've picked up on this by now. It's addressed to a specific church, and then there's a glimpse into the power and the glory and the authority of the one speaking, Jesus himself, and then there's this truth that is laid out to each and every church, and it really has different connotations depending on the church. There is a truth that Jesus knows and sees. For some of the churches, this is a good thing. Jesus knows your good works. Jesus knows your heart and your love for him and the way that you're serving the people God has called you to serve. But for other churches, this is a warning. That Christ himself knows your deeds. He sees the works that you do. He sees the inner workings of the church that we may feel like are hidden from the rest of the world and each other. Jesus himself sees he says, I, I, I know. I know your deeds. I know your afflictions. I know where you live. Jesus is intimately familiar, not just with the churches in Asia Minor, but, but us today. Jesus understands. And so, we kind of start with this 
common greeting. But what you'll find right away is that this is, this is a letter where the warning gets thrown out right away. I know that you have a reputation, meaning the way that everyone else in the region sees the church in Sardis is one way, when in reality Jesus knows the truth. He says, the, the people around you have this reputation, have this thought of you, that you are alive. You are the church that seems like it has it all together. You're the, you're the church that, that does all the things. You're the church that has the biggest attendance. You're the church that does things that look right in the world's eyes. And yet Jesus himself says that even though the world sees you this way, I know that you're dead. It's horrifying. So let me give you a, a little bit of context to help you understand what's going on around the city of Sardis that has led to the church taking on this mindset as well. Sardis was an extremely important and wealthy city. The reason why it got most of its wealth uh, was because of the natural alloys that were found around the city. As you, would, as you would look around the city, you'd see this river that was flowing through it. And inside of that river was a different type of alloy called electrum that was a mix of gold and silver. They quite literally had money flowing through their rivers. This is a city that had so much power because it had wealth. King Croesus, a 6th century Lydian Empire uh, emperor, was the first to use this alloy to mint coinage. Here's what we know. This isn't a new phenomenon that was limited to their day. It's, it's in ours as well. The one who controls the money quite often has the power. And so you have a city that has the materials necessary to mint coins, to build wealth flowing through the rivers. They're the ones that have the power. This is an extremely wealthy and powerful city. It's not just limited to wealth, though. This is also a city that, that found a sense of pride. I think it goes further than pride. I think there's an ego that comes in, that they feel like because of the area that they're situated in, they are a city that is impenetrable. They're a city that is located between two mountain ranges, which means there is one way into the city and there is one way out. Easy to guard that one way. You've got mountains behind the city on both sides. There is one way in and one way out. And not only that, the city's military fortress, the Acropolis, uh, was put on such a high and steep cliff uh, that the idea from the people in Sardis was that there is no one, there is no one that can scale this mountain and conquer our army. Uh, this is a city that finds a lot of pride in its wealth and its security. And we'll get to uh, just how this went for them here in just a moment. Uh, but it's a city that really hangs its hat and it's a church now that has taken on this mindset that, that we've got wealth, we've got power, we've got security, we've got everything that we need. So you can see why the churches around them that are dealing with persecution, that are, that are dealing with poverty, that are dealing with all of these different issues of suffering would look at the church in Sardis and think, that is the church we aspire to be. They've got wealth, they've got power, they've got security, they can worship freely. We want to be like them. Sound familiar? It took my mind back to a quote 
from a pastor named Donald Barnhouse. Donald Barnhouse was a pastor in the 1950s, 1960s in Philadelphia at the 10th Baptist Church. He asked his congregation one Sunday morning, he said, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine what a city that had been overtaken by Satan would look like. Inevitably, he realized that most people would think this is a city that immorality is just rampant. Uh, there, there is no morality. In fact, everywhere you turn, every street corner, there's, there's another vice that people can get their hands on. This is a city in utter destruction and chaos, violence. And he says, I, I think it actually looks different. He says, all of the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine, pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every single Sunday where Christ is not preached. In other words, it would be Sardis. Having all the appearances of righteousness, when in reality being absolutely dead inside. Uh, you, you understand the example, right? This, this church, this, this city that, that looks like on the outside everything is pristine. And yet they've forgotten the centerpiece of it all. This is what Barnhouse says a church or a city overtaken by Satan would look like. And here's the reality. If we're honest, many of us hear that quote and think, man, that sounds great. Sounds a whole lot better than what we feel like we're experiencing now. We'd love for our city to begin to resemble Mayberry in some sorts. And the parts about Christ not being preached, well, I mean, at least the churches are full, right? At least people have morals and values. I mean, isn't, isn't that the goal? And I'm certainly not advocating for us to engage in immorality, but the crux of this sentiment is this. If our goal as a church is to simply influence culture, to look like some idealized version of morality that you and I have in our heads, then our goal is infinitely too small. It's not the goal of the church. The goal of the church, the primary goal, it's not for our city just to be cleaned up, to look moral on the outside. The goal of our church is to preach Christ and him crucified. Why? Because that's where morality flows from. But morality, just for morality's sake, uh, apart from Christ, here's the, the deal. It's a theology that damns us. If we're hanging our hats on morality apart from the gospel, it offers no spiritual benefit to you and I. It's not that we pursue immorality, but we understand that I'm a good moral person is a futile argument in light of eternity. Right, because what, what, is, what does Romans 3 tell us? What's, what's the, the starting point of the gospel? What's the bad news? 
It's that there is no one good compared to a holy, righteous God. Listen, the standard for salvation, the standard for an eternity with him is perfection. And I think you know yourself well enough. I think I know myself well enough to know that's not something I possess. So if morality is our primary goal, as seemed to be the case in the church in Sardis, we have missed, we have missed the point of the gospel. Because our primary goal isn't to tidy up society. It's just not. No, our primary goal is to preach Christ and him crucified because we know that's the only hope. That's the only hope we have. And the gospel is always offensive. And what you're going to see from the church in Sardis this morning is that it's a church that was willing to compromise with the person and work of Jesus Christ if it meant they could get along with culture a little bit better. And so let's continue the text. Verse 2, Jesus says to the church in Sardis, So wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. So again, this is a city that has a history of relying on their security, relying on their location, relying on their wealth to just get along. It's really a church that feels like they, they have everything that they need. So do they really need Christ? And this has come back to bite Sardis in its history. Again, everything that we see in this letter, it is real. It speaks to real people. It speaks to real circumstances. And when Jesus utters these words, it would have taken the people in Sardis' mind back to the history of their city. Because this is a city that, despite its pride and its security and its safety, has been destroyed twice. Always comes in moments of complacency, moments of, of feeling secure. In 547 BC, under the reign of King Croesus, uh, there was a conquering Persian army that approached the city of Sardis, and they, they see this seemingly inconquerable Acropolis sitting at the top of this mountain, located just in this valley, that there is one way in, one way up. It seems to be insurmountable. In fact, as many armies have tried, have failed. And yet, and the story goes, uh, that a soldier that was guarding the one doorway, the one secret access for the soldiers into the city, fell asleep. And as he fell asleep, his helmet falls off his head and rolls down the side of the hill. The scout for the Persian army that's watching all of this happens, watch as the soldier comes out, goes down the secret path, grabs his helmet, and winds back up, knowing exactly how to get in to the city. As he waits a little bit longer, the soldier, perched at the top, falls asleep again. He climbs the hill, sees the secret passageway that this soldier used, unlocks the front door, and the Persian army destroys the city of Sardis. This has happened twice. This is a city that understands what falling asleep at the wheel leads to, quite literally. 
And so Jesus is using this example that should cause this church to sit up and take notice. Look at what complacency has brought you as a city. The same thing is coming true for the church. Wake up. The second thing is this. Sardis had a large and powerful Jewish community. And by this point, those who would claim to be Jews and those who would claim to be followers of Christ could not be more at odds. And yet, as the Roman Empire looked at the Jewish community, they recognized there really seems to be no reason why those who follow Judaism in Sardis couldn't coexist with the Roman emperor worship of the day. Uh, We feel like the Jews could probably do both, and the reality is they did. And so Judaism was given this edict of religio licite, meaning it is a legal religion in Sardis amongst those people. Because they were perfectly capable of following their traditions and customs and all while compromising and declaring that Caesar is Lord just because it would help them get along with the culture around them. And yet... Christianity was given this edict of religio illicite, or an illegal religion. And it stemmed from this fact that believers at that time refused to declare that Caesar is Lord. After all, the basis of Christianity is built around the fact that Jesus is Lord. And so the Roman Empire saw that that these two things can't really coexist. And so what we see from commentators and scholars, they'd say that many of the Christians within the church just disguised themselves as Jews. They were willing to compromise and and quit declaring that Christ is Lord, both with their mouths and with their lives, if it meant they were able to get along with the culture around them easier. Again, comfort and security became their Lord. And so it, it, again, leaves the church in Sardis with a choice to make. In fact, it's, it's no different than the choice that you and I have to make. Keep Christ under wraps. Continue in, in safety and security that you've enjoyed for so long. Or risk it all by refusing to keep faith in Christ hidden. Jesus makes the choice for him. He says, you need to wake up. Hold on to me. Wake up from your arrogance and your confidence. Cling to me. Because here's here's the reality for the church in Sardis, and it's the reality for you and I as well. Every single one of us is confident in something. We are. And the reality is, is that some of us have our ultimate confidence in Christ, and others of us have ultimate confidence in something else. Here's, as we look at the text, here's the conclusion that we can confidently come to. A confidence misplaced is nothing to be confident in. A confidence misplaced is nothing to be confident in. Because culture will always demand that you declare it with your life, something is Lord. And the reality is, is you have done that. Up to this point, you have declared something in your life is Lord. And yet, Christianity is built on the foundational confession that Christ is Lord. So which one is it for you? 
Because declaring Jesus as Lord will always put us at odds with the world around us. But, but you can trust this. It is the only sure thing. Some of you have confidence in possessions. In fact, your, your life has declared things are Lord. Some of you have put confidence in money. And with your life, you've declared money is Lord. Some of you have made an idol out of your families. And with your life, you've declared, my family is Lord. And as harsh as it sounds, some of you have declared, my kids are Lord. The reality is this. There is one Lord that can meet your expectations of him exceed the reality is this is whether with your mouth or with your life you declare that that money possessions people family my my children if you've declared with your life that they are lord it is nothing to be confident in from a eternity perspective if if those have taken center stage in our hearts, and our, our hope is in them, the reality is, is that is a Lord that will not lead to salvation. They are good gifts from a good Father. They are terrible lords. Back in week two, as we looked at the church of Ephesus, we kind of set the scene for who Jesus is, because that's ultimately the question that hangs in the balance for all of these churches. Who do you say Jesus is? I'm going to jump back. This won't be on your screen, but I just want to read it again, because back in Matthew 16, Jesus is still teaching his disciples. He comes to Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them this question as well. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Don't don't miss what he's saying here. Uh, They're saying the people around are are saying that that you are a good teacher. The people around are are saying that you're a, a good man, a good moral example. Some are even going so far to claim that you are from God, and yet none of that is the cornerstone on which our faith is built. Because Jesus takes the question further and he asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, the confession of who Jesus is, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So the question that we look at, as we looked at these sections of text, is what is the thing, or who is the person, that hell will never overcome? It's Jesus. And, and that's an exclusive claim. Because of him, hell will not overcome his church. 
But yet what we see in the church in Sardis is that they were willing to trade salvation for a sense of security and safety. They were willing to hand over their eternity if it meant that they could just slip by in this culture now. What an uneven trade. You see, this is the great paradox of humanity. That we're willing, and and I don't want you to feel like I'm not including myself in this too. That we're willing to put all of our focus, all of our effort, all of our time, all of our energy into things that cannot save us. They will never sustain us. And if they're what we're looking to as Lord, they will damn us. And we do all of that over the one who promises that he and he alone is mighty enough to save us. And that he and he alone is where life and freedom is found. This is the great head-scratcher of humanity. That we're willing to trade the freedom and life of Christ for the finite things of this world. So Jesus continues speaking through John here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. He says all of that to say this, Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Hold it fast, meaning cling to it, and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Uh, What is Jesus calling them to remember? The gospel. He's calling them to remember who they are apart from Christ and who Christ has made them. What does he use to to shake them from their slumber and hopefully get them to repent and bring them back to him? He reminds them of the power of his resurrection, his crucifixion, and what it means for them. This is what you and I need to wake up to. Why, Why is Jesus... Why is he speaking so strongly to the church in Sardis? Because he knows this is where life is found. The the reality for us is so many of us are looking for life in so many different places only to find that that this is true, that it's not sustaining us, that it's only leading us to want more. And you're never going to find the feeling that you're longing for except through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is it. You feel like something's missing? You, You sense some emptiness in your soul, this is why. Because you bought into a lie that that filling comes from anywhere else outside of Christ. And what we're reminded through this is that it is only found through them. You wonder why you just can't seem to make traction with this. It's because you're looking in all the wrong places. So it reminds them, remember the gospel. That's why I continually say we don't, we don't move on from that. This isn't beginner stuff when we graduate on to, to more intellectual things. If you forget this, 
then we've forgotten the very place that life itself is found. Remember the gospel. That you are sinners, that I am a sinner in desperate need of saving that is not found within myself, but was found on the cross of Jesus Christ and his perfect life and his death that I deserved. And that he showed his power over everything, including death, by rising from the dead three days later, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting to return to judge the living and the dead. Those who have trusted in him, he'll send to everlasting life. Those who have rejected him, he'll send to everlasting death. This is the reality of all humanity. And this is what Jesus has reminded the church in Sardis. Hold on to him. Verse 4, yet... You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. And they'll walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The symbolism here, the, the picture that Jesus is painting in this church's mind, is something they would have been well familiar with in their culture. A white toga in the Roman Empire was a symbol, a sign of victory and the joy that comes from that. So Jesus is using this example, he says, to those who hold on to me, who trust in the gospel and walk in obedience to me and and, and aren't soiled by the things of this world, I'm going to give them white robes, a sign of assurance of victory and the joy that follows. But the question is, is, as he ends this section, he says, for they are worthy. How are they worthy? Are these the people who held on in perfection? Absolutely not. They're the people who have trusted in Jesus. They're the people that when the world has said, just just compromise. Just give yourself a little bit to the world because it's easier for you. They've, they've They've chosen the hard road. They've clung to Christ and who he is. And they rejected the things of the world. And Jesus says, now they are worthy, not because they've earned it, but because they've trusted in Christ's worthiness. Because the gospel says it's Christ's worthiness, his righteousness, his perfection that is given to us. And so they'll receive white. Verse 5, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. In verse 5, he separated the church into two groups. He says, you've got very few that have held on to the name of Jesus, that have been unspoiled by the things of this world. And yet, his grace is on display, and he says, those of you that that have received this warning and would repent of your sins and would turn towards Christ and trust in him, I'm going to give you that victory robe as well. The grace of Christ, it's available for you. Everyone wants to know, what are the the sure things? What are the things that, that I can place all my chips in and know with absolute certainty that it's going to be? I think the reality is twofold. One, you and I are moving closer to death. It, it's, 
the older I get, the more that seems like it is coming quicker and quicker. You probably feel that too. And the other certainty is that there is a second death coming. For those who don't trust in Christ, there is either life forever, there is death apart from Christ forever. These are the, these are the two realities. And so he says, so the one who will turn back to me, I'm going to give them life. Life uncorruptible. The life whose foundation is unshakable. And he ends with this. He says this every letter. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are the recipients of this message, first in Sardis and now us today, you have a choice of what to do with it. We can, we can play these church games that, that make us look good in the eyes of everyone else. Or we can be a people who have truly chosen to follow Christ. And whatever the world has for us as a result of that, come what may, we understand our foundation is unshakable. And so the offer to you is the same as the offer to the church in Sardis. Come to him. Repent of your sin. Repent of the things that you've placed in his rightful place. And he stands ready to forgive. I guess the question is this. Which of Sardis's professed questions do you identify most with? There are two groups. There are those who are Christians in name only. They're Christians because mom and dad were. They're Christians because grandma and grandpa were. And yet they have no relationship with Christ themselves. In fact, they look good to the world. They know how to say the right things, and yet Jesus says, I know you've got this reputation for being alive, and yet I see right through it. That you fooled the world around you, but you haven't fooled me. You're dead. Are we a Christian so long as it's convenient and non-offensive? Which the reality is this, it's getting more offensive by the day in our culture. Or are we those who are solidified in Christ and hold on to him regardless of what comes? For those who hold on time and time again through the letter to the seven churches, the promise is life is coming. Hold on to the one who gives it. Father, I thank you so much for this truth. Lord, as I look at your word Lord, I'm confronted with the reality of, of how many times I've made something or someone else Lord besides you. Father, I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, I recognize that the, the gospel message to claim to be a believer is offensive. It speaks the truth to who we are. It speaks the truth to the state of our hearts. Father, I think the message for us is, is the same as the church in Sardis. Wake up. So Father, would you strengthen what remains in us? Would we be a people who 
cling to the hope that we have in Christ. And also recognize we, we're getting ready to leave and go into a world that is dying apart from you. And yet you showed us this is where life, this is where victory, this is where freedom is found. So I pray it's not a message we hold on to for ourselves. Father, you are the cornerstone. Christ is Lord is the foundational confession of what we claim to believe. So Father, would we live a life in obedience to you as though we believe that confession, that cornerstone is true. So Father, convict us, change our hearts, change our minds. Lord, we pray that you would turn them towards you. It's in your name that we pray these things.